1: Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the Bible with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez. Today, as we continue with our study in the book of Acts, we see Philip being led by the Spirit away from Samaria to lead an Ethiopian eunuch to belief in Jesus. We'll pick it up in Acts chapter 8, verse 24. Once again, that's Acts chapter 8, verse 24.
0: You know, Jesus is still working, right? Amen? That's what Acts is about, to show us that Jesus continued to work after he ascended to heaven. And where we're at in the book of Acts is God has been moving through his son, by his spirit, through the church. A huge persecution has broken out upon Stephen's murder at the hands of the Sanhedrin. And despite this organized attempt under Saul's leadership to reign the church in, Christians continued to preach the gospel wherever they ran, wherever they fled to. And through Philip, we saw God brought amazing revival to Samaria. But not everyone received the gospel. A sorcerer named Simon, who the people of Samaria had looked up to as a God come in the flesh, he professed faith in Christ and he was baptized, yet his faith wasn't from the heart. And so that's why my topic today is believing with the heart. As we see Simon contrasted with both Philip's heart and then another new believer we're going to meet today, may it remind us that saving faith, it happens here in the heart. Look at Simon's response, verse 24. There's no repentance here. Peter told him to pray to the Lord. And what does Simon say? And Simon answered and said, Pray you to the Lord for me that none of these things which you have spoken come upon me. Wow. He told Simon to urgently call out to God for his need. But here we see still no repentance in Simon, only concern for the penalty of his actions. I don't want that to happen to me. Now, history tells us Eusebius says that Simon became so bitter at Peter's response to him that he did not repent. He said that actually he became the founder of the Gnostics. Now, if you don't know who the Gnostics are, they were the first Christian cult. They denied the Trinity. They denied that Jesus came in the flesh, that he was the Son of God, that he was God from the beginning. And, and they taught heresy. They were the first you know, group of people that really began to teach heresy under the name of Christ within the church. And tradition, Eusebius says that Simon became their founder. He was so angry and so bitter at Peter because he had called him on his false faith that he eventually led people astray in the first Christian cult. Well, verse 25, And when they, that's Peter and John, had testified and preached the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem and they preached the gospel in many villages of the Samaritan. What an awesome thing. I love that they're willing to lay down their cultural prejudices against the Samaritans once they realize they're wrong and that God is working in them. And that begs the question for us, are we open to changing what we think and do when God shows us in his word that we're off? Are we teachable? Are we humble when it concerns that? What boundaries are you and I unwilling to cross because of the cost involved in doing so? They didn't care at that point in time. Well, they're going to look at you weird because you're hanging out with Samaritans. They said, we don't care. Jesus is saving Samaritans. Well, verse 26, And the angel of the Lord spoke unto Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south unto the way that goes down from Jerusalem unto Gaza, which is desert. Now, we don't know how long Philip had been in Samaria or even if there were multitudes still getting saved. We're not even really sure if Philip had a role in the continuing ministry because at this point in Acts, things had shifted to Peter and John, right? So we don't really know what was going on. However, I can't imagine leaving this awesome environment with something that Philip anticipated. If someone came to Philip and said, hey, Philip, he said, you should pray about going and ministering in the desert. I'd be like, I rebuke you in Jesus' name desert? God's doing stuff here. It's obvious he's working here. Get thee behind me. Maybe that's why God had to send an angel. I don't know. And I'm not sure how that worked. Maybe that was what it took to convince him. Philip, you should go down to Gaza. I'm not going to Gaza. Yeah, angel. I don't know if that's how it worked out. But an angel of the Lord came to him and said, Philip, get up and go toward the south under the way that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza, which is desert. (laughs) Another way to translate that word is a lonely place. Do you know that sometimes God calls you to a lonely place? He does. You see, I can't understand how this would be God's will. It's, I'm lonely. It's hard. I'm alone. It's difficult. I don't see any fruit. The Philistine city of Gaza was destroyed in 96 B.C. and a new city was rebuilt closer to the Mediterranean in 57 B.C., which left the old city as a deserted wasteland. Being a prior major city meant that a main road still led through this area, And that was all the significance it had. It's kind of like one of those old scenes in the Westerns, you know, where the tumbleweed is rolling by and the, the little whistle happens. But you know what, how contrasted is Philip with Simon. Simon wanted to retain his influence using the power of the spirit as his next trick to get people to follow him. And Peter talked about those who make merchandise of God's people, false prophets who use God's people. Philip he wanted to serve the Samaritans, not exploit them. And so guess what? When God calls him to leave, he's not leaving a kingdom for a desert. He's leaving one place of service for another. We don't need to despise a small ministry or small things and small opportunities. I remember uh, there was a Bible study I was doing and I think uh, like three people showed up and they said, well, oh, we're so sorry. It's only three of us. I said, listen, I've preached to my wife as the only person in the room before. And that's a hard crowd. You leave in one place of service for another. Never despise the day of small things. Never despise the opportunities that God lays before you. Now that doesn't mean that going to Gaza was easy, however. A road like this would be dangerous to travel alone. What would he find when he got there? God didn't tell him that part, did he? He just says, go to Gaza where there's desert. That's where I get. My tendency would say, don't eat that way again. You're having visions of angels telling them to go to weird places. But it gives us a few lessons about God's will. Number one, God's will can never be determined by the lack of... Or the presence of difficulty. Never. never You can't say, oh, that's going to be hard. It's got to be God's will. But you also can't say, oh, it looks like it's going to be hard. Can't be God's will. You can't say either of those things. We just need to do what God says. But secondly, God's will comes one step at a time. One step at a time. Very rarely have I had God say, now, Will, here's your next five years in front of you. And here's what you're going to do. Don't mess it up. That's never happened to me. Maybe it's happened to you, but it's never happened to me. Normally, it's very simple. Get up. Spend time with me. Go to work. Work hard. Love people. Serve people. Come home. Say hi to your wife. Say hi to the kids. Do not take a nap. Love your wife. Serve your kids. Smile. Call this person. Text this person. Seek my face. Very simple. And when it comes to Some type of an outreach or some type of a ministry thing that God wants me to do. It usually starts with, Hey, I want you to go do this. Well, what will happen when I tell people that's what we're going to do? You'll find out. God's will comes one step at a time. And we need to obey the step that He puts in front of us first. Verse 27, and He rose and He went. And behold, anytime you see behold in your Bible, you should actually translate it, check this out, because that's what it means. It's a marker to say, Pay attention. So, he rose and went, semicolon or colon, depending upon what translation you have. And then it's like Luke says, Check out what happened. God sent him down to the desert and look at what happens. He says, Behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had the charge of all her treasure and had come to Jerusalem for it to worship, he was returning and sitting in his chariot reading Isaiah the prophet. What's the chances that that happens? And yet God knew. And when it comes to God, there are no chances. He knew. Now this guy, he's a court official, a eunuch. Usually those guys are castrated so they don't ever have any danes on taking the throne because they have no one to pass it on to. So this guy is a servant. He's a high-ranking court official. And it says in the court of Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians. Now, they didn't have an Ethiopian kingdom back then. This was the ancient kingdom of Nubia. If you look for where it was located, it would be in southern Egypt and northern Sudan today. Herodotus, the Roman historian, called it the end of the world. Their king was venerated as a child of the sun. Therefore, he was too sacred to serve in secular functions. So the queen mother, who bore the dynastic title of Candace or Kandak, ran the kingdom. So her name's not Candace. That was her title. So this guy is a bigwig. He is a servant to the queen. He is a very influential, powerful, probably wealthy man. And it mentions that he was going to Jerusalem to worship. So now you would think to yourself, oh, okay, he's a Gentile believer, a Gentile proselyte. But there's a problem with that. Deuteronomy 23.1, look it up. It says very clearly that a eunuch can't become a part of the congregation of God. Can't. You're disfigured, so you can't. So here he goes, all the way up to Jerusalem. I don't know if he knows the Lord. Maybe he's heard about the Lord. Monotheism, you have to remember, was not the norm in that day, so it had a high attraction to pagan cultures. You mean you only have to think about one God? Yeah, it's awesome. And so he would go up, but when he got there, he would be barred from worshiping the Lord, even if he wanted to convert. And you know what's interesting about that? (laughs) Is that this means that God is about to break down pretty much every culturally perceived barrier through Philip that you could ever imagine. That every single person is loved by God and that he wants to reach them. In a sense, the uttermost parts of the earth begins its fulfillment with this man. Now it says he was in his chariot sitting and reading Isaiah the prophet. Now in that culture back then, no one read silently. Augustine actually made a point of mentioning that a fellow minister during his day, Ambrose, read silently. It was so weird. It was the norm to read out loud back then. So he's reading out loud the scroll of Isaiah. And then verse 29, the spirit said unto Philip, hey, go near and join yourself to this chariot. Now, again, I don't know how the spirit said this to him. I don't know if another angel came. It doesn't say that. So I would guess no. The word said here, it means words that are audibly spoken or words in one's thoughts. That's how the Spirit speaks to me. Oh, I get that prompting, that little voice in the back of your mind saying, this is the way, go here, walk ye in it. That's what Isaiah said. I don't know, though. And he said, go and join yourself to this chariot. But again, he doesn't tell him what to do when he gets there. God's will comes one step at a time. He certainly doesn't know if this guy is safe to approach. I would imagine being a powerful figure. It's not just him by himself in the chariot on a lonely desert road. It's probably a huge entourage of guys with spears and all sorts of other things. He doesn't know that the eunuch's reading a scroll of Isaiah, but he obeys what he does know. God says, go. And so he goes. I'm going to look at how he goes. Verse 30. And Philip ran. I love that. Do you and I run to do God's commands? Philip ran thither to him and heard him read the prophet Isaiah and he said, do you understand what you're reading? So he gets there, he pulls up and it's at that moment the light bulb goes off. Oh, he's reading from Isaiah. He's reading the Bible. This is the coolest thing ever. And he asks him, he says, hey, do you understand what you're reading? Now that's a simple question that eventually leads to this guy's salvation. And you know what? Sharing our faith with others isn't complicated. Oh, I don't know what to say, God. Ask a simple question. A lot of times I'll ask people, say, hey, do you know the Lord? Simple question, and it can only be answered one of two ways, right? Yes or no? It's kind of like a choose-your-own-adventure book. You remember those in the 80s? Yes, turn to page this. Oh, tell them about Jesus. Okay, no, tell them about Jesus. Yes, tell them about Jesus. No. Yes, you know, oh, awesome. Where do you go to church? If they have a good church, can I pray for you? Is there anything I pray for you about? I don't have a home church. Well, let me tell you about an awesome one. There's so many different ways that we can do that, but it's just a simple question. And sometimes that's all it is, just a simple but pointed question. Do you understand? He said to him, verse 31, how can I accept some man should guide me? (laughs) Custom made ready unbeliever. How can I accept some man should guide me? And he desired or invited Philip that he would come up and sit with him, which would again be very rare. He was ready though. He was ready. He wanted to understand. And that's the thing. You'll never know if a person wants to know the truth unless you ask. But they might not want to know. That's okay. But they might want to know. And you'll never find out unless you ask. Part of our job in sharing our faith is to explain God's word to people in a way that they can understand it. That's my job up here to teach the Bible. I want to try to teach it in a way that that every single person here can walk away with something that they can apply to their life. Well, the place, verse 32, of the scripture which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and like a lamb dumb before his shearers, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his judgment was taken away, and who shall declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. If you take some time later and read Isaiah 53, this is the bottom half of verse 7 and all of verse 8 that he's reading right here, right now. You'll see that that's the verse that talks about Jesus being the suffering Messiah, Talk about perfect timing. What if Philip met this guy an hour or two before or after this man was in Isaiah 53? Might be a completely different conversation, wouldn't it? That's why God's will and his direction is so worthy of our trust. He knows things we could never know and that we might mess up if he revealed it to us beforehand. Trust and obey, the song says, right? For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. And so the eunuch answered Philip and said, I pray you, you know, I beg you. The guy's desperate. I beg you. He says, of whom does the prophet speak this? Of himself or of some other man? Now, this isn't a guy that's used to pleading with anybody. He's used to making people beg him of things. And perhaps it gives us a glimpse into where he's at. He'd gone to Jerusalem to worship this one true God he's heard about. A trip of two months Each way, so four months total. And when he gets there, he can't. He ends up paying for the scroll, and I can't even go into how much this must have cost him to get. And all it's done is confuse him. Talk about a frustrating end to a a trip that he had hoped he was looking for something, looking for God. And maybe you're out there today. Maybe you feel the same. Maybe that you've tried to find God, and I I just haven't found him. And it seems like everywhere people put barriers in front of me, or I, I keep running into things that just don't work out. I want you to know this today that God loves you enough to meet you right here, right now. He loves you enough to meet you right here, right now. He's not barring the way. Jesus made the way. The Bible says the veil was torn. God is saying, enter in, come. And He longs to answer your questions. And so He says, Isaiah, is He talking about Himself or somebody else? You got to think, Philip's like, are you for real? <laughs> He's about to find out. And so Philip, verse 35, he opened his mouth and he began at the same scripture and he preached unto him Jesus. That word preached, euangelio in the Greek, and it's where we get our word evangelism from. He evangelized him. He told the good news about Jesus to him. You know, Jesus is on every page of the Bible. Philip didn't have to work hard to show that guy this with this passage, but are we prepared to give the good news about Jesus? when someone asks questions about the Bible, to bring it to Jesus instead of that issue, or are more concerned with winning an argument. We should always be able to give an answer for the hope that lies within us. Verse 36, and as they went their way, they came into a certain water, and the eunuch said, hey, here's water. What does hinder or prevent me to be baptized? And Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus is the son of God. Now that raises an important question. What are the requirements for baptism? Well, it's kind of simple. Water and a confession of faith. That's it. Water and a confession of faith. There's not discipleship as a requirement. This guy had just met him. Godliness wasn't a requirement. There was no age requirement. There was no length of faith after conversion requirement. It was the regular practice of the early church to offer baptism to converts upon conversion because it's an act of obedience upon the part of a believer. Now, some of you might be sitting there and going, and you might even be kind of talking to the person next to you going, hey, do you have that verse 37 in your Bible? It's not in mine. Some of you probably don't have verse 37 in your Bible. Why? Well, hang with me for a moment. Every translation of the Bible is based upon two schools of thought. You have the King James, and this is not a King James, honk my horn, about why I use the King James. But the King James and the New King James are based on the majority text, something called the Textus Receptus, which is built from thousands of manuscripts, tens of thousands of manuscripts, all over the ancient church world. Every other modern translation besides those two is based on what's called the minority text. They're based on five Eastern manuscripts that were part of kind of the the area around Jerusalem and Syria and whatnot that are the oldest complete ones at our disposal. And they're from around the fourth century. Verse 37 is missing from those five manuscripts from the eastern part of the church. And the idea is that most people that have done those translations, they believe a scribe made a commentary note later on that was verse 37. And so that's where they believe it got added to the Bible. So that's why they don't include it in all those other translations. So, which is correct? The majority text or the minority text? I'll let you do your own research, but I do believe verse 37 was in the original copy of the book of Acts. Irenaeus, a pastor and apologist in France who had been discipled by Polycarp, who was a man discipled by John the Beloved himself, he quoted verse 37 in his work against heresies in 180 A.D. Cyprian, the pastor of the church at Carthage around 250 AD, and Pontius, one of his deacons, both quoted verse 37 in their writings. And that would be around 250 AD. A handful of other church leaders quote verse 37 all the way through the fourth century. Now, since they would predate these five manuscripts from the East, it is my personal belief that it was in the original text. And so since the five manuscripts used by the minority text all arose from a different region than all these leaders. It's more likely that someone in the eastern part of the church left it out by mistake, and those were copies of that mistake. That's my opinion. Some of you are going, oh, my gosh, my Bible's bad. No, it's okay. I am a King James guy. I'm not a King James only guy. If you got a Bible translation in front of you that's a good, decent translation, I don't care which school of thought it comes from. But you are going to run into a few of those issues. For example, the end of Mark 16 won't be in your Bible. The beginning of John chapter 8 won't be in your Bible. 1 John 5 7 won't be in your Bible. So you have to understand when you approach these things that do some research and make your own choice. But I do believe that the King James stays the closest to the original text, and that's why I use it. Again, not a KJV only person, and I think it's dangerous to do that. Because whether it's in there or not, we know this truth of verse 37 from other places in the Bible, don't we, right? So we're all good. He says to him, if you believe with all your heart, and this is what I want to leave you with today, with all your heart. What does it mean to believe with all your heart? Does it mean, well, you're Really, 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 really got to believe. I used to think that. And the reason I failed is because I wasn't believing with all my heart. Really, 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 really believing. And I heard someone say to believe with all your heart, it means to personalize it. That's what it means from here to here, to personalize it. That Jesus isn't just a Savior or the Savior, but He's my Savior. That He didn't just die for the sins of the world, but He died for my sins. He wasn't only raised for our justification. He was raised so I could be right with God. And I place all my hope and trust in him. That's what it means to believe from the heart. And that's what the eunuch has that Simon didn't. That's why Simon's heart wasn't right with God. Because Jesus was a way to regain his influence over the people, not his way to forgiveness. If you don't know the Lord, if you've never come to that place, of believing with your heart, of personalizing this gospel message. I want to tell you today, today's the day to repent. Today is the day to make that right. And so he commanded the chariot to stand still and they both went down, both into the water. He gives us an example of what baptism was. and I'll let you figure that out yourself. Both Philip and the eunuch and he baptized him. And when they were come up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord caught away Philip that the eunuch saw him no more and he went on his way rejoicing. And that's my heart for you today, that every single one of you would go your way rejoicing because you know your sins are forgiven and you know the one and true living God. But Philip was found at Isotus and passing through, he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. And so we close out chapter eight with the eunuch going away rejoicing, Philip being snatched away. You say, well, that's kind of weird. Well, it's not the only time it happened. Remember when Jesus and the disciples were on that boat on the Sea of Galilee and the storm came up? And remember Jesus said, peace, be still. And it says immediately they were at the other side. He's God. It ain't no deal for him to just move us from one spot to the next. Not a problem at all. In fact, there's one more move coming. For that word to be caught away, it means to be seized or snatched away or abducted. And that's the same word that's used to describe the rapture in 1 Thessalonians 4, 17. And we that are alive and remain shall be caught up in the air to be with the Lord. And so shall we ever be with him. You say, where did we get that word rapture from? Well, raptus is just the Latin word for this word here to be caught up or snatched up. And that's why we call it the rapture. And this was kind of a sneak peek for Philip. Kind of like, oh, no, back down. It's kind of cool, though. And then he went up to Caesarea. And that's where Philip settles down. The next time we see him is in Caesarea. And it's when Paul visits him in Acts 21, and then he's known as an evangelist. And I think you would agree with me that the title fits. Lord, we thank you so much for your love and your grace and your mercy this morning. We thank you that you have brought us to this place where you've made it clear there's no barriers, nothing to come between you and us. All we have to do is receive, to place our trust and our hope in you. And Lord, if we don't know you, to repent and come to the cross. Lord, we thank you so much for this example between Simon and Philip and the eunuch, so that we can understand what real faith is, what saving faith is, what it means to believe in the heart that we might be saved. Would you continue to work on our hearts? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: True belief from the heart leads to repentance. No one can choose it for you. It's a personal thing between you and Jesus only. This has been In the Word.